Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and today we are very honored to be joined by Sheila Sus Kennedy. Um, a, and I'm going to read this great biography because it really is uh, comprehensive, I think, and um, uh, well-deserved. Uh, so Sheila is an emerita pro uh, professor of law and public policy at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, otherwise known as PIA. Uh, until her retirement, she was a faculty fellow with both the Center for Religion and American Culture and the Tobias Center for Leadership Excellence, an adjunct professor of political science and founder of the university's Center for Civic Literacy. Prior to joining the faculty in 1998, she practiced law in Indianapolis, including a stint as corporate counsel uh, for the city uh, of Indianapolis from 1977 to 1980 when she left to become the Republican candidate for Indiana's then 11th congressional district seat. Uh, from 1992 to 1998, she was executive director of Indiana ACLU. And she is the author of nine books, I guess now 10, um, and numerous academic articles and publishes a daily widely read uh, blog devoted to politics and public policy, which I enjoy all the time. Uh, and so, um, so thank you so much, Sheila, for for joining me. This is great. You have such a terrific um, background. You have um, done so many great things. I'm very old. <laughs> you know, that's Eventually, you have to do everything. Yeah, that's it. But today, um, we're going to talk mostly about your new book, um, yes. which has just been published, which, you know, I had to really, you know, fight to get my hands on. Um, and so, and I'm going to put it up here. It's called, oops, let's see if I can do this. From Property to Partners, I can't read it backwards, Women's Progress and Political Resistance, um, written by you and um, Morton Marcus, um, a, a well-known um, uh, economist um, in Indiana. So, and, um, he's, and he's done a lot of great stuff on social issues. Um, in fact, I know of him because I spent many years working in early childhood education, and he did a lot of work on the economics related to uh, accessibility of affordable, high-quality childcare. Um, which I very much appreciated. But today we're going to be talking about, um, it's a great historical uh, review of the women's evolution, the women's movement, but more than that, um, really um, technical and, um, and political and legal developments that have moved women forward and backwards um, throughout the entire history of this company. So, so, all right, I want to get right to it, Sheila, because um, one of the points that you bring out, and this is, you know, this is all about abortion. Um, and one of the points that you bring out very early on in the book is the relationship between um, white nationalism and misogyny. So, um, and the history of that in this country. And, um, and so can you elaborate a little bit on you know your thoughts on that on that part of the book? Sure. Uh, what what we're facing right now, and not just women are facing this. I mean, uh, it's all bound up in in my view, and I I've done a fair amount of research on this. It we are experiencing what one columnist called a primal scream. Older white Christian men who have been accustomed to having a privileged place in the social order, who have been accustomed to enjoying their status, 
looked around and said, well, my goodness, I mean, there are these uppity women who are running companies and there are these, there's black people everywhere who think they're my equals and there are gay people getting married and they are uh, frantically trying to turn the clock back to, I don't know, 1950 perhaps, when people who were white and Christian and mostly male uh, were the undisputed uh, rulers of the of the place. And all of that is, we're, we're seeing all of that work through. It is not just a uh, a war on women. It is a war on social change, on inclusion, you you see the uh, the DeSantis uh, hysteria over woke, woke being inclusion, and you see the Indiana's abysmal uh, uh, legislature uh, attacking business that wants to take into account measures of inclusivity and diversity. Uh, this is you know. You mentioned in your introduction that I used to be a Republican. It was a very different party. But one of the things that the Republican Party believed uh, when I was a member of it was that you didn't uh, interfere with business. And I believe Barry Goldwater said, government should stay out of my bedroom and my boardroom. Well, today's Republicans want government both places. And Certainly, uh, the old Republican Party, the the sane Republican Party, was not totally anti-regulation, but they really did believe in respecting the right of businesses to make decisions about where to put their money and how how to handle their advertising without government interference. And well, there's so, been more and more of that lately. There's been a lot oh, more writing on that too about you know uh, the Chamber of Commerce used to direct the legislature, uh, you oh, know yeah. the Republican um, legislature, and now uh, you know no they don't give a hoot about what um, business thinks anymore. Well, uh, the, oh, what ahead. we have in our in our state legislature and in several other states, we have a very unrepresentative legislature thanks to gerrymandering, which is another whole issue. But right right now. I think what our legislature is doing is against the clear preferences of even the the Republicans. I mean, we see that when Kansas and and uh, Kentucky have referenda on abortion, uh, and easily uh, the pro-choice uh, position prevails. Uh, you know, if these are not representative uh legislatures they're just not right right and it said you know and it was so great to see around the country all the um ballot initiatives um you know there was some filibustering going on of course there was some challenging to gerrymandering all three of which are not allowed in indiana yes we have (laughs) a particularly difficult road to hoe because uh in indiana the only people who really can change gerrymandering are the people who benefit from it so in the absence of massive turnout uh that is enough to over over 
run the the uh, presumably safe districts, or a a federal law that outlaws gerrymandering, we're we're unable to do anything about it. But yeah. anyway, let's get back. Exactly. It's, it's so right. So yes, back to the white nationalism <laughs> and misogyny. Yes. So yeah, how did that? You know, tell me how you kind of came to that kind of connection. I've been yeah. You read my blog. I've been talking about this for quite some time. I mean, it really. If you read history and you read uh, the pronouncements of some of our contemporary uh, public figures. It's not hard to see that all of that is bound up. When we talk about white Christian nationalism, that subsumes racism, misogyny. You know, (laughs) what's that meme that goes around? Haters are going to hate. I mean, these are people who feel threatened, terribly threatened by social change, by the, the nerve of women and African-Americans and gay people to to think that we're, we're equal citizens, you know? So, I mean, I think it would be harder to deal with misogyny as a uh, isolated uh, thing, because it isn't. I mean, it, you want, the minute you look at the pronouncements of these folks, you see those connections. You connect those dots. Well, and you, in fact, you quote um, uh, Maura Donegan from The Guardian. And there's one little part of that quote that I thought was so interesting. It says, misogyny is is often the first form of right-wing radicalization. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that's hyperbole or really? I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I, I mean, I that's think, a pretty heavy. <laughs> but I think what she's looking at is something that we also uh addressed in the book, which is the very important role of religion in keeping women subservient. You know, that the title of the book is From Property to Partner. And we're not, we're not full partners yet. We may be junior partners, but we were property. And there are still uh, several religious bodies that believe that women are uh, should they would say they're not unequal they just have a different role and that role that they prescribe for the woman is to be supportive and submissive to the man who has the uh, evidently god's permission to run the household and and the world you know uh so we go through uh in one of the chapters the variety of religious uh beliefs that underlie uh, approaches to feminism. And for example, uh, Quakers have been uh, in the forefront of women's emancipation. Uh, The Jewish community uh, has been uh, also along with the Quakers, but then you get into the Southern Baptist uh, denomination and you see an absolute I don't know if it's an inability or an unwillingness to modify those original beliefs about the role that a proper woman, that God wants a proper woman to play. So, and then, you know, and and this kind of brings up the political part. 
Um, you know, the fact that all of this has, you know, become religion has become political, has become so political. And yes. that's, you know, that's the evolution that you kind of describe in the book um, about the Southern Baptists who, um, and just as recently as the 1970s, you know, adopted resolutions that um, provide women with options for abortion, you know, in many, many cases. Uh, but then that changed, right? Yeah. <laughs> That change was entirely political and strategic. Uh, for about six years after the decision in Roe v. Wade, the uh, the Southern Baptist denomination, actually they put out a, a statement saying it was a well-crafted decision and, you know, drew a, a proper line. What I don't remember the exact terminology. It was when Jimmy Carter's administration refused to allow the uh, people who were donating to segregation academies to deduct those uh, those gifts uh, that uh, the right wingers wanted to get rid of J Jimmy Carter and uh, realized that they could, you know, what, what they looked to see what it would take to get the evangelicals who had been pretty non-political up to that point out to the polls. And they quite rationally decided that uh, a movement founded on we have a right to segregate probably wasn't the way to go. <laughs> so right. they, they hit on abortion and those babies that are being killed. This was entirely new. And, you know, as we were as we were doing our research, um, I talked to uh, clergy in, who were both those who consider themselves pro-life and those who consider themselves pro-choice. And they agreed that, you know, the Bible is basically silent on this. It's, uh, and up until, uh, as I say, about six years after Roe, uh, so were most Christian denominations. The the change occurred as they were able to sell evangelical Christians on this notion that uh, abortion was murder of these babies. And and for, for now, the 50 years uh, in between Roe and Dobbs, uh, those people went to the polls, <laughs> I hate to say this, but religiously, and, uh, and were adamant that that you know that their religion somehow uh demanded or commanded that they oppose abortion it was a really cynical and very good strategically uh it was a, a good move because it it uh really was an it gave them the ability to turn out voters who otherwise might have stayed home. Well, and it's a it's a sad example of using religion um, to support your financial yes. <laughs> success. I mean, because that's what it was, right? It was all about the, you know, it was all about the tax deductions and the ability of religion of churches to raise money um, and, you know, you know, make themselves wealthy. Um, but it was more than it's, it's power, you know, yes. yep. it was a, a way to maintain 
political power that they might otherwise not have had. Right. So, and then um, as you um, put a point out in the book, um, you know, the, the rise of the evangelical, um, which, you know, I think is coming to be known, not necessarily as a religious position, but as a political position. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, in fact, it's interesting. Just this morning, um, I get the the uh, newsletter. I get everybody's newsletter, uh, but I get a newsletter from Pew, and they uh, confirmed this morning. They they uh, the newsletter had a the data from a study that shows that uh, increasingly the people who self identify as evangelical uh, don't go to church, and. As we said in the book, the, the term evangelical has been appropriated by people who are simply very, very right wing, even if they are not at all religious, as most of us would would understand being religious. Uh, it It's part of this polarization of the United States voters. Uh, and evidently, it, you know the the cult that is now the Republican Party, which really bears no relationship to the party I once belonged to. Uh, that cult uh, defines itself as evangelical, but uh, I have a couple of friends who are evangelical ministers who would uh, certainly. Uh, offer a repost <laughs> to the notion that these people are following evangelical theology. They're not. They're, it Once again, it gets back to a, uh, a racist and misogynistic uh, reaction to social change. Right. And a, yeah, and a power grab. Yeah. That's what it's, yeah. So, all right. So I want to uh, move along a little bit and, um, you know, you um, and you've done this before when we've talked and you've, you've got it in the book. You do a great job of really um, kind of describing what's um, become known as substantive due process. Mm -hmm. And so and that's really what was, you know, the underpinning of, um, yes. you know, Roe v. Wade and uh, finding a constitutional right uh, to for women to get an abortion. Um, so mm -hmm. so help us with that. Talk about that, because it's not, you know, those words are not in the. In the Constitution, it doesn't say substantive yeah. due process anywhere. People like to talk a lot about the right to privacy. Uh, what they're talking about is substantive due process. Uh, when I hear privacy, I think of somebody looking through the window. So I think it it's a little bit misleading as a as a word. But when we talk, whether you want to call it privacy, whether you want to talk about it as substantive due process. What it is, and the, the Supreme Court was first very explicit in, uh, I think it was 1967, when the uh, case came from Connecticut, uh, challenging a law that uh, said pharmacists could not write, could not honor prescriptions and doctors could not write prescriptions for contraceptives. And what the court said was, look, the 14th Amendment and the due process provisions of the 14th Amendment uh, operate to draw this line between what government can and cannot do. 
you know, Art, if you take a look at the uh, entirety of the Bill of Rights, what it is, is a list of things that government can't do. It, it, it isn't a matter when we talk about birth control or abortion, it doesn't say what the answer should be, what, what substantive due process meant and means, in my view, is that there are certain areas of our lives that are our decisions. It, it, the question that is answered by the whole Bill of Rights, and especially by substantive due process, is who gets to make this decision, the, the person involved or the government? And over 50-year period, the court has repeatedly said, yeah, you get to decide who you marry. You get to decide whether you're going to have kids, whether you're going to use contraception, whether you are going to abort within that first uh, couple of trimesters. Um, the government does not get to tell us what book to read, what prayer to say or to pray at all. I mean, it is, there is a line drawn by our constitutional system between appropriate government action and intervention and inappropriate. And the right to personal autonomy, the right to make your own life decisions is what is protected by this doctrine that we call substantive due process or the right to privacy. You can, you know, whichever term you prefer. But it was very clear that government doesn't get to make certain decisions that the court has historically called intimate. That was the basis upon which they uh, said same-sex marriage uh, had to be allowed. That that uh, government, I used to tell my students, government is supposed to butt out of your soul. You know, you get to determine the telos of your life, which is telos being what philosophers call your uh, beliefs about the meaning and ends of your particular life. Those are not appropriate areas for government to invade. And, you know, just sort of as a side thing, I was, I was amazed at all of the right-wing anger about uh the government telling us to wear masks. Government gets to do that because you're protecting public safety. If the old fashioned libertarian principle was that government had to uh, allow you to do your own thing <laughs> until and unless you were harming the person or property of someone else. And so long as you were willing to give an equal liberty to everybody else. That is the principle that really underlies our whole constitutional system. And these, this court right now has ignored and evaded that. The Dobbs decision simply uh, ignored substantive due process and said that the government had the right to make decisions for individual women uh, and that the woman no longer had that right. And that was- the question I wanna ask. Do you think that Dobbs really did away with substantive due process? So when you think about that principle being applied to you know, other areas, yes. I mean, do you think that Dobbs really undid 
undid that concept? It was the first shot over the bow. You know, I certainly if the court continues in the way that it has been going, we would look back later and say that was the place where they decided to dispense with what had been a foundational constitutional principle for something like 57 years. And I I find that more terrifying than just the actual Dobbs decision, you know, when, when you simply look at it as a an overruling of Roe v. Wade. If they're overruling Roe v. Wade, that's bad enough. But if they are dispensing with substantive due process, we don't live in the same America I grew up in. Right. So so now this is interesting because it really leads to um, the next topic that I want to talk about. And, okay. and we'll get back to the book. I mean, as much as you want, because uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. But so if now the government, um, there is not that that line, that red line um, where the government can tell you what to do. And, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and and that uh, even if your religion, um, you know, you think exempts you from this law, then, um, you know, because when you think about it, well, OK, so what happens now if um, we get a different court and the court says, well, yeah, OK, so no more substantive due process. And you know what? Um, we're going to we don't think religious people should be getting any deductions. We don't think they should be tax exempt um, because I don't think they're doing that much for society and we don't like the way they're operating. Um, so then, you know, kind of turns the tables on the whole argument of staying out of my religion, staying out of my, you know, intimate uh, moments. <laughs> and so, you know, you remind me of a, uh, a saying that the, when I was at the ACLU, the uh, head of the national head of ACLU used to say, you know, poison gas is a great weapon until the wind shifts. That's right. And, and what you're describing is a shift, a potential shift of the wind. I used to argue with with pro-life folks and say, you know, the government that can tell you you can't abort tomorrow can be like China and tell you you have to. Uh, the, the issue is not abortion. It is government power. And uh, until people understand that and understand the multiple ways in which this new ability of government to control our lives can manifest, uh, you know, it's pretty scary. It is. So so that brings me to this next topic, and that is the um, the second case that ACLU filed um, against the Board of Medical Examiners or who has it now as the Medical Licensing Board, um, and it and based on RIFRA. So um, and and I'd love it if you gave us your little history um, of RIFRA. I mean, it because uh, it's you know the interesting thing that now, of course, um, has created this pile of poop that maybe um, somebody has stepped in who didn't intend to. <laughs> well, it's it's another, uh, you know, uh, another example of poison gas. I don't, it, right. Or as some people say, karma is a bitch. Uh, <laughs> That's right. RIFRA was, first of all, the, the national RIFRA was, uh, I don't I don't want to it gets pretty complicated but the idea was that uh before you in uh told religious folks that they had to do x you had you had to re you had to uh exceed a, a higher bar 
you know, it, you had to have a very compelling reason to overrule somebody who was acting on, and if I hear sincerely religious one more time, I might throw up, but, uh, you know, at, so that was the national, and it really, the, the case that, that uh, created the national uh, approach was a zoning case. I mean, it was, you know, uh, yeah, but here in Indiana, our depressing legislature, uh, under the, uh, the clear, uh, well, leadership, I guess, of Mike Pence, uh, passed a version of RIFRA, which was slightly different than the national, and that was widely seen as an effort to allow religious folks to discriminate against gays and lesbians. And we, those of us who were in Indiana at the time will remember there was a huge outcry. Businesses throughout the state uh, really uh, criticized. I remember even the Indianapolis Star had uh, a front page that just said, fix this, <laughs> and in right. huge letters. So it it sort of got fixed. Uh, and it, the uh, there was a denial uh, that it was intended to do what it clearly was intended to do. And you know, so it, it was slightly modified. A lot of cities in Indiana then passed local ordinances to protect gays and lesbians from discrimination, and it sort of died down. What right. the ACLU has done is say, okay, uh, RIFRA, if it does anything, says you cannot impose on sincere religious people uh, a duty that is inconsistent with their religion. And uh, for example, I am Jewish. In the Jewish religion, the pregnant person has uh, moral, uh, is morally considered uh, more important than the fetus until the, the head emerges from the womb. In other words, a, uh, a Jewish pregnant woman uh, who is ill, who, whose doctors say has to be aborted, whatever, uh, in our religion, it's not that the fetus does not have uh, moral status, it does, and it's certainly not taken for granted, but, but our religious beliefs allow abortion. Uh, there are other religions that uh, are similar that allow abortion. So what the ACLU has said is that uh, the uh, law or the, the ban that was passed by Indiana's legislature violates RIFRA. I would go further and argue that it violates the First Amendment religion clauses. Uh, but be that as it may, I mean, I, it is very clear that to the extent that that ban is uh, is allowed, it is a pro. It what it is doing is effectively uh, compelling every woman in Indiana to abide by the religious beliefs of some, but certainly not all, Christian denominations. Which, right. again, in my view, not only violates RIFRA, but violates the First Amendment religion clauses. So, um, 
that's that is that case and i have high hopes for that case because i cannot imagine uh a compelling argument against it great so yeah let me just give a little background so first there was the aclu's challenge uh, based on um just you know I, article two right um right uh, everyone's uh indiana Indiana's constitution that says all people, not just men, all people are entitled to inalienable rights, um, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's kind of a paraphrase. I've left out a few words, but um, but that 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 is a violation of Article Two of our constitution, mm -hmm. and, and that one um, uh, is still pending. I, uh, a decision may be coming soon. I'm not sure. So that went to the state supreme court. And uh, and it was argued, and now we're just waiting for a decision uh, from the um, the Supreme Court. And it was also enjoined with a very good um, uh, order of injunction that I was very impressed with um, from um, um, a judge in Owen County, whose name I keep forgetting. Anyway, um, and so so that case is pending now. And then after that, ACLU filed this second case based mm -hmm. on Ritter, that the that the abortion ban in Indiana is a violation of the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, yes. And they and they have a couple of great um, full standards, you know, uh, that this, that are included in this law that uh, says that it has to be both, um, the, the state, if you make a prima facie case that, that the law requires you to modify your behavior um, that you were following because of your religion, that the state then has to come back and show um, both a compelling governmental interest um, and yes. that, that their law is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling interest. Mm -hmm. um, and it you know, applies to criminal laws and everything. So we've heard of this in legal history, right? Where um, you know the Indians um, wanted to smoke, I'm sorry, that's not, Native Americans were, were supposed, wanted to sm smoke peyote, which was mm -hmm. an illegal drug. And, um, you know, in the Supreme Court addressing that, um, there was a case recently with a guy who wanted to grow a beard in prison, which was against the law, um, but it was this religious thing. And the court said, of course, that's your, you know, that's your religious thing. You don't have to comply. You don't have to shave your beard. Um, you know, so are there, there are lots of instances like that. And so this one, of course, is the abortion one. And as you said, they have these, uh, these uh, five um, named plaintiffs. Uh, well, they're anonymous, but five plaintiffs. And, um, and they are seeking class action status so that they will represent all Hoosiers um, who are similarly situated um, as these particular plaintiffs who, uh, who are saying that they have modified their behavior um, due to this law um, and that that violates their religious beliefs. Uh, and so, as you said, you, know, um, you have to show it's a sincerely held belief. Um, and you have to show that you've modified your behaviors. And these women are saying, yes, I do not have intercourse with my husband anymore, sexual intercourse, um, because I am afraid that I will become pregnant and will not have uh, the ability to follow my religion in obtaining an abortion if that is appropriate in my situation. And another woman um, you know, says that she's using birth control that she never would have used before. Um, and that she's changing her behavior in that way. There's a couple of other plaintiffs in there, um, Unitarian Universalist, who uh, says that her religion says that, you know, women are just, you know, the, the center of power and energy and that they, you know, that their religion um, celebrates that uh, bodily autonomy of everybody. And so, um, you know, not being allowed to have an abortion violates their, their rights as well. Um, the state came up with a bunch of crazy, you know, arguments. 
um, none of which this um, this judge um, uh, bought in her. Uh, this is a, actually her um, Welch uh, from Marion County who did this injunction order, which I'm uh, very excited about too. Um, and like you say, this looks like a really good um, case of yeah, the wind shifting um, and the poison gas going the other way. And so um, uh, the um, RIFRA also requires that there be a case by case consideration of religious ex exemptions um, to these applicable, applicable rules. Um, of course, the state was trying to argue that, well, they've argued first that, uh, well, none of these women are actually pregnant right now, so it doesn't count. But the law, actually, um, you know, the RIFRA actually allows that. It says a person whose exercise of religion has been substantially burdened or is likely to become uh, to be substantially burdened by a violation of the statute can assert that the violation or impending violation as a claim or defense in the judicial or administrative proceeding. So they've really kind of, you know, I don't know, you know, they, they tried everything, but um, none of it seems to have um, stuck. And so um, one of the things I really want you to talk about um, concerning this case is the Hobby Lobby case. Um, um, and you made such a great point about the whole corporate um, bail being busted, but we'll, we'll put that aside for a second. But I love that um, point. I think that's really important. But um, who'd have thought that case would turn out to be this important? Um, uh, so maybe if you could kind of talk about the Hobby Lobby case and how that, you know, how that connects with this case. Well, um, one of the ways it connects, and it's not a way that I had originally understood, it's the same judge, it's Alito, who obviously has uh, an agenda. Uh, Hobby Lobby, uh, which is a corporation uh, under the uh, ACA or Obamacare was uh, required to include in their health plan for their employees uh, coverage of uh, contraception. And the, uh, the shareholder, the majority shareholder of the corporation uh, said this violated his religious beliefs, even though under the ACA, it, did, it didn't cost him a penny. But he, I don't know, he was, uh, I suppose, wouldn't sleep well. I, who knows? Uh, and the court allowed what we call the piercing of the corporate veil it, for this one purpose, to allow this religious major shareholder to deny contraceptive contraceptive coverage to all of his employees, many of whom had religious beliefs that certainly allowed them to use contraception. Uh, it was a shocking case at the time, but what really shocked me was then recognizing the fact that that was Samuel Alito and he was setting the... Uh, <laughs> setting out his uh, essentially religious beliefs in the in the law of the land, which he has now followed up with. And and let me say, and, and the book does go into this. The Dobbs decision was an enormously dishonest decision. Uh, it it picked uh, language out of context. It cited uh, things from like the 1700s. I mean, it was a profoundly 
dishonest uh, read of the law of, of the of the appropriate. Uh, uh, my my mind's going. You know the the laws that needed to be followed. Uh, so what we're seeing right now is the ability of a a religious fundamentalist to impose his view of the uh, of God's will, I suppose, on a secular country by misquoting, misunderstanding, mis using issuing a decision that was uh, full of legal holes, but he's it's the Supreme Court. You know, what we don't get into in the book is the current problem that we have with the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And we don't have time in this podcast, nor do I have the uh, <laughs> the intellectual ram to bring out all, but but something will have to be done to bring the court back into a place where most Americans will once again respect its legitimacy. Because if, if there's anything that Alito has done, it is to put a great big hole in the respect and legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Right. Well, we and we hear Elena Kagan talking about that often. Yeah. Um, uh, about you know, and and she said in the Dobbs case, you know, initially that this will this will very much undermine uh, the legitimacy and the authority of the Supreme Court. And and I think she's right. And and, and but like you say, it's a Supreme Court. Where do we go from here? You know, well, and then <laughs> we have found that there are no ethical constraints either. So yeah, it, we're we're at a point where uh, stare decisis, which is the rule that uh, the court must uh, issue uh, opinions that are consistent with past opinions, has been thrown out the window. So it, you know, we've got we got lots of trouble here in River City. <laughs> we do, we do, and and you and you talk about that in the book too. That this is a particularly chaotic and transitional time that we're living in and um and so you know it's uncertain for sure but um but you know it, it that we see that this is happening and that we know what's going on you know we're all we're all obligated to fix this but a point I wanted to make too about Hobby Lobby was that this judge um uh judge um Welch uh, in Marion County relied on Hobby Lobby a lot <laughs> in her order issuing the injunction against the abortion ban um, until, of course, they can do a full um, full argument. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting that she really, really relied on Hobby Lobby. And it's- I'm gonna have to read that. I have not read her decision. So that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yes, it's very good. Um, so, um, you know, interesting in here, like here's like one little snippet. Uh, that the Supreme Court already recognized in Hobby Lobby that the question of when life begins is a religious one that the state may not answer legislatively or as a factual matter. So, I mean, again, the poisonous gas has shifted. You know, it worked for um, anti-abortion, anti-woman, um, you know, corporates um, before, 
and now, of course, you know, it may be working against them. So, um, and this, uh, yeah, the nature of the this enduring question and the dispute surrounding it are illustrated by the very fact of the competing affidavits of both sides. You know, clearly there is dispute about when life begins, because of course that was the state's argument is that, you know, life begins at fertilization um, and that uh, at that moment, the state then is, has a compelling interest to, you know, to put this uh, fetus, these, you know, handful of uh, uh, cells uh, over the rights of the woman um, who is pregnant. So, um, so I thought that was really interesting. And so you'll see that in there a lot. And I thought that was really great that Hobby Lobby is, you know, coming you back know, to it, The other thing, for coming up to the time that we, that the Dobbs decision was handed down, on my blog, I wrote a couple of times, be careful what you wish for, right wing, because I think, and, and this is really a, uh, a message that the book emphasizes, I, I think it emphasizes, which is women have wakened up. You know, be, before Dobbs, you had these evangelical pro-life people who came to the polls and agitated and all. And then you had on the other side, the rest of us who said, well, you know, it's, it's an issue I care about, but we've got Roe and there are other issues I care about. So it was one issue among many. When Dobbs came down and I, I, I said this would happen and actually I had a, a big uh, bet with my youngest son who is so disgusted. He says, nothing's gonna help, you know? but he did not believe that uh, the response to Dobbs would be uh, what it was and what I certainly anticipated that it would be which is that women said, hey, wait a minute, you know, that was one issue among many. Right now, it is an issue at the top of my list of issues. And there's been some significant research, uh, opinion research, that shows that women have who didn't previously vote have been registering in large numbers, that uh, those people who haven't previously voted are virtually all uh, energized by this issue. So, you know, I, if, if we save the country from the current Supreme Court and the, the Keystone cops that are running the House of Representatives these days, uh, I think it will be women who save us. It will be. It will be women. I mean, and and there was huge examples of yeah, women coming out all across country. Um, you know, and particularly on these kind of you know ballot initiatives and you know the filibustering. Um, um, and I, but um, as you know, I do a lot of work with um, women in politics, and um, and it was really sad to see that Indiana was kind of an anomaly in that respect. We did not. I mean, even in Indiana, young, you know, in twenty twenty two. Young people didn't really show up, and um, and we didn't win. And you know, we didn't flip. You know, any significant um, House seats or Senate seats in Indiana, and um, and and voter turnout did not. You know, expand. And even voter registration was a, just a tiny little uptick. So I mean, um, but it's happening everywhere else. And you know, we can always hope that eventually, what happens everywhere else, it will you know come to Indiana. Uh, hopefully. 
So I want to go to to the um, and in your book, you know, in the back, you know, you you know, you point out some questions that you hadn't gotten to yet, and so um, so uh, that's great, and I appreciate that, and it really we you know sets us up for all the work we have to do, but um, but the question um, when you talk about the women's movement, you know, first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave, whichever wave it is, um, you talk about the more modern uh, women's movement having some rifts um, in it, that it was not as unified as the previous women's movements. And, you know, for various reasons, you know, what they were focused on, you know, just voting. Uh, and now there's all kinds of issues. Um, and that um, previous ones, you know, really did leave um, women of color out of their fight. Um, and so so now we've got, you know, more, you know, more inclusive movement, but that means we have more disparate perspectives and, um, and more disparate priorities. And so, um, so, so the question that you ask is, you know, in this most recent women's movement, you know, are there leaders who can cross those fault lines in the movement? And, um, and how do their goals and the goals of the various factions diverge? So, um, you know, of course, I would ask, how can we make them converge? <laughs> um, so, um, so I don't know, what do you think about that? Are there leaders, are there ways for the women's movement? Because in Indiana, we're really struggling. You know, we didn't, we're not, we didn't come out in unity um, against this ban in Indiana. Well, you have to realize there are two things about Indiana. One is that uh, gerrymandering is the best way to suppress the vote. Uh, I was talking to a young woman, I can't recall her name right now, who was running in one of these collar counties that uh, is considered safe Republican. And she went door to door and she said the thing that surprised her the most was the number of people who said, oh, I thought I was the only Democrat who lived around here. You know, uh, I think it's so... You know, we're practical people, and we, in John Stewart's wonderful words, most people have shit to do, and you don't spend a lot of time doing things if you think there's no point to it. And when what we've got in so many places in Indiana, the Democrats did haven't even been putting in a candidate. So why should you go to the polls? I think Indiana is going to be slower to to get behind the the what I believe to be the inevitable women's movement. But I would want to say we, we're going to have a woman running for governor, Jennifer McCormick. And I think women are going to come out in droves and support her. And that would be the first step toward uh, Indiana rejoining you know, like the 21st century. Uh, which we don't live in here. Uh, but I I do think that uh, nationally, I mean, we saw it in the Wisconsin judicial election most recently, where in Wisconsin, elections have been won or lost by a, a point. And, and the pro-choice candidate won that uh, by 10 points. I mean, I, I don't think... Indiana may not be the fastest at anything, maybe, maybe around the track, but nowhere else. But I, I, you know, I think the culture is changing. And, and frankly, I think women and, and black people and gay people are changing it. 
And uh, I, I read a, a very interesting book that one of the readers of my blog suggested uh, that I just finished uh, by Stephen Prothero uh, about why liberals always win the culture wars, even when they lose elections. And his point was that the hysteria we're seeing, the uh, hugely angry uh, white Christian nationalist stuff, the uh, anti-woke whatever, those people only come out and start being hysterical when they realize they're on the cusp of losing the culture war. And I think that's exactly where we are right now. Unfortunately, it, Republicans have been very good strategically in keeping control of systems that have allowed them to exercise political power that the numbers of supporters would not would not legitimately give them. So, I mean, I something like the last time Republicans were in control of the Senate, uh, Democrats, Democratic senators represented 20 million more people than the Republican majority. <laughs> you know? I mean, that cannot continue to go on. Now, there's a lot of damage being done in the interim, but I do think that the unanticipated effect of Dobbs, and we I think we make this case in the book, is to uh, really set a fire under women voters in the and and many, many men, and not just men who are members of minorities, but nice men like my kid. My I have three sons who are more feminist than I am. I have a husband who's very much a feminist. I mean, it, they it, there are plenty of men and plenty of women who have been wakened by this last unfortunate bit. Yeah. So and in, in your book, you know, um Morton Marcus um disagrees with that um that forecast and um and says, well um, I, he thinks that uh, women will be distracted by mm -hmm. these other uh, other, you know, kind of nonsensical uh, culture war issues that Republicans are throwing out there, like, you know, the anti trans stuff and the anti LGBTQ uh, plus um, stuff. And so um, so how can you you know, how do you think we can help women um, stay focused on this and uh, keep their eye on the prize? I don't think that uh, women opposing those measures are losing focus. That's where Morton and I disagree. Uh, it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same culture war. The I think that women understand that these attacks on trans children, these attacks on gay people generally, uh, all of that is an attack on us. I mean, it, it's all part of the same war, if you will. And uh, I don't consider it uh, a distraction. Uh, and I don't think it will distract from women going to the polls and voting for pro-choice candidates. Yeah, so I guess that's the question. Are there, are there enough women who 
believe in reproductive freedom, but don't believe in, you know, LGBTQ rights. I mean, I don't, I think those are the same women. I mean, I they think- They are definitely the same women because yeah. what we all believe in is our right to personal autonomy. And the, and what is the government's, the, you know, all political uh, arguments boil down to one, which is what is the proper role of the state? What is government's job? Government's job in, in the beliefs that I think motivate most of us are not to control our reproduction, our sexuality, our, you know, our government's job is to pave the damn streets and pick up the garbage and keep the country safe from foreign people and to give each of us uh, a zone of liberty within which we can each ma make our own way. And so the, all of these issues that the affect the attacks on trans kids, on, on uh, African-American, whatever, all of those uh, aspects of this overall debate are in their at their base they are examples of government getting too big for its bridges to, to, uh, getting out of its lane if you will right and right. i think what we inherently know because we've lived under substantive due process or the right to privacy for all these years i think most americans just automatically think hey wait a minute that's none of government's business. If if those trans children are being uh, treated by uh, a medical professional that they're uh, that was chosen by their parents, those parents have a right to direct that that childcare. It's not government's job to tell parents what they can and cannot uh, provide to their children. And I think it is ludicrous when you hear the, uh, oh, well, we're for parental rights. The only rights that they're, parental rights they're for is the parent who wants to get rid of book A from their children's library and turn librarians into felons. Uh, and but, but getting back to, to the message of the book, I think most women understand that and see these issues as one. And the issue is, what is the proper role of government and where is government overstepping that role? Right. Well, and then, you know, one of the, um, you know, last questions you ask is, um, you know, what else are we at risk of losing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, certainly a compelling uh, question. You know, now that we've gotten a taste of what we can lose, um, we do have to keep thinking about how much worse it might get, um, you know, if we don't act. So, yep. and we can do it. I mean, I agree, we can do it. We have we have the numbers, um, but we have to get those numbers uh, to the polls. So I, I think I think we can do it. I hope, um, and I hope more Democrats. When I've I've, I've always been, you know, a proponent of always having a, you know a Democrat on on the ballot. Uh, yeah. You cannot <laughs> cannot not put a candidate up. And there has to be a choice. I mean, like you said, all that does is drive down voter turnout. I mean, why bother coming out 
to vote if there's literally no one to vote for? If there's no choices to make, why why even bother um, coming out? So I, and I've always been a big proponent of that. And I think the Democratic Party is starting to come around on that. Because <laughs> uh, let us hope. Yeah, let's hope because they were not um, too uh, excited about that, uh, which was unfortunate. And but I think now I think they are starting to come around. So yeah, that's good. So all right, great. So um, I think that is all the questions I have for you today, Sheila. I have questions like when you're not around all the time. I should ask Sheila. <laughs> but, um, but there's always fascinating conversation with you. Um, well, and, thank uh, you. Well, tell, tell everybody to please buy the book. <laughs> great, great. Buy the book, everyone. Just buy the book. So, And I'll, I'll probably end up with two because I ordered it. And then I think... They said they lost it. You want a refund? I was like, well, yeah, okay. And then I ordered it again. They, so now, but then the original showed up. So now I'll probably get two. So there you go. So if anyone needs an extra copy, a Christmas gift. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. They're cheap. They're, the the uh, the ebook is six fifty, and the uh, paperback is twelve fifteen dollars. So I think it was fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So please. People and who great are reading. This, go yeah. by. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, you know, great historical information, great thinking, great questions, great discussion. Um, you know, and, and if you're into the, um, you know, minutia of, you know, of labor, women's labor uh, participation uh, over the last, you know, many years, you know, that is quite well laid out in many charts and graphs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those so, okay. So that's right. That was Morton's part of the book, and and uh, and so it was really great. So anyway, well, thank you so much, Sheila, for you know chatting with me again. I always so enjoy it, and thank so um, I'm sure, and I'm sure we'll be doing this again. Okay. Thanks. All right.